Welcome back to the 4A Baseball Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Thursday, May 25th, 2023, and right now, it's just going to be me for today. Stevs and Tom are both on the road. They're both busy, and we wish them the best. We're going to try and do something different with this episode on the YouTube side of things. So what you're going to hear on the episode, the podcast, which you're listening to right now, is going to be a bit different on the YouTube side of things. They're going to be a couple short four- to five-minute videos that will summarize everything we talked about in the episode which if you've seen the title when we talk about you may not understand your elders but you must respect them the name bryce elder that's a really interesting name that has come up because he's one of the best pitchers in the national league right now in terms of stevs metrics he's got a 201 era over 58 and a third innings pitched and that it boggles my mind that he is doing so well like every time that i see him performing on the baseball field i don't understand how he is doing so well last night he faced my lovely dodgers and he held them to one earned run over six innings pitched he did allow nine base runners in those six innings but at the end of the day he only allowed one run so far this year he has gone five innings pitched in every single start and he's gone six or more in 60 percent of them the thing is under the hood, it tells a little bit different of a story because you look at today's day and age and you see a lot of high velo power pitchers. I heard that term thrown around a ton, high velo, high stuff guys that really just blow away traditional pitchers, the guys you try and pitch the contact. Almost Sandy Alcantara is the best example of a modern day former pitcher where you pitch to contact but still have very good stuff and get the results. Obviously, that's regressed this year with the ban of the shift, and that's what makes Bryce Elder's case so interesting because here's a guy who is really just focused on pitching to contact. His best pitch on Stuff Plus is an 82, and it's his sinker. or Sorry, 89, and it's his slider. His sinker is an 82. Fastball is 65 and a changeup of 55. His location plus is completely average at 100. Pitching plus is below average. So that makes you think of how do these pitches play off of one another so effectively that he's able to succeed with them, right? Because the names surrounding him are – they're not pleasant names because at the end of the day, it's looking at qualified pitchers who have thrown an X amount of innings, and there's – Three pitchers that are worse than him, and one of them is a really interesting example. Austin Gomber and Kyle Freeland, both Colorado pitchers. Obviously, their stuff's going to be a bit worse considering they're in the atmosphere, uh, much higher than Atlanta, much higher than Texas for Martin Perez, who last year, if you remember, had a huge breakout. He had a 289 ERA, hit to the 200-inning metric, and... It was a great season breakout for him, but looking at Stuff Plus right now, he's got a 76 overall. Same thing goes for him. His slider is the highest at 89, so it looks like that these guys are A, masters of the ground ball, and that they're very, very good at being able to execute their pitches in a spot where batters aren't going to be able to optimally launch the ball. And that kind of gets into the issue with Bryce Elder, right? You look under the hood, he's got a 447 expected ERA. That's the biggest gap in all of baseball. He's got a 48.2 hard hit percentage and an average fastball velocity of 90.6 miles an hour. So if we're going back 30 years, that's exceptional. 90.6 is, you know, it's pretty hard for then. And he fits the mold of being a pitch to contact type of guy. He's got 51 strikeouts over 58 in the third innings. And that's not a horribly low rate. 
Like you think a guy like Dustin May from the Dodgers would have a ton of strikeouts given his high octane, but he's averages six strikeouts per nine innings. So Bryce Elder still does a respectable job in the high sevens per nine innings. And it's just so confusing trying to understand how this guy, Bryce Elder, who it's frustrating watching him pitch and your team not succeeding because you look at it and nothing's moving like crazy. I think the reason that he is succeeding so much is because everything looks similar. There's no standout breaking pitch. I remember this quote. I forgot who it was by, but it was talking about the 90, it was talking about the 1990s Braves and he was watching two pitchers throw one with this absolutely like full of life fastball and the spike curveball and Greg Maddox. And he said, just watching the bullpen, you'd expect the other guy to be so much better because all of Greg Maddox's pitches just slightly move. They're just a bit different than one another, and it makes you get off balance. So that makes me think if Greg Maddox were to pitch nowadays, his stuff wouldn't grade out that well. But since he was so exceptional with command and his ability to locate it where not necessarily the count would call for it to be located, but where you needed the pitch to be thrown in order to induce weak contact and to get out of innings, right? Because Greg Maddox was a sub strikeout per inning per inning guy he feasted on ground balls there's called a maddox for a reason it's a complete game in less than 100 pitches because he would pitch to contact and that's how he would succeed so that's what bryce elder's doing but you think with the shift is gone this guy's kind of pitching to contact he's got the eighth highest ground ball percentage in baseball that the braves have to be playing pretty good defense behind him right that's not true the Braves are playing to a negative three outs above average behind him. So clearly it's not that. The thing that's really concerning is the hard hit rate. But when you combine a really high hard hit rate and a very high ground ball rate, they kind of negate one another or the ground ball overrides the hard hit because these are put into situations where the batter can likely be out as the fielder makes routine plays. But when the defense is playing to below average defense, it gets a bit confusing trying to understand how Bryce Elder is succeeding. And I'm going to be straight up. It's luck. There is evidence to suggest that he is not as bad as his 447 expected ERA, and ground ball pitchers are much more likely to outperform their expected stats. But when he has an average launch angle of 6.8 degrees, it means he's more susceptible to singles and doubles than the long ball, which is evident given his four home runs allowed and 58 in the third innings pitch, which in today's day and age is the home run is up since the highest has been since 2019 with the juiced ball. It's very good. And obviously 201 ERA, you're competing for the ERA title with that. And I think a lot of baseball can agree with the fact that this is not who he is. But he has a 349 FIP and a 345 expected FIP, which means that he is not walking too many guys, that he is competing in the strike zone, and that he's keeping the ball in the yard, which we can all see is very evident. The expected FIP, for those just unfamiliar, expected FIP is basically getting rid of the home runs that a pitcher has allowed, and it takes the league average home run per fly ball and gives that to the pitcher as opposed to the pitcher's home runs allowed. So let's say that Bryce Elder had a 10% fly ball rate allowed and every fly ball that he gives up one of those 10 or 10% of those are home runs, but the league average is 15%. It's saying that if the expected FIP is saying 
that we're going to put this 15% in for the 10% fly balls that Bryce Elder has allowed. So it's going to increase his expected FIP if the rate is higher than his home runs or if he is lower than the league average home or if he is higher than league average, it'll actually regress a little bit. However, there's a lot more under the hood than just explaining the expected FIP for trying to understand how home runs relate to that. But in saying that, do you suggest that there's definitive sustainable success to some of his accolades, to some of what he's done, but there is likely to be some form of regression coming soon? Is that a bad thing? No. But you're going to regress at some point, and the Braves need him to be very good. With Kyle Wright and Max Fried out for an extended period of time, likely two to three months, they need Bryce Elder to continue to be good. And if that regression puts him in a three ERA, that is completely acceptable. They just need that regression to not be too far to the expected stats, which I don't think is going to happen. And you think with a 201 ERA, does he have to be in the conversation for the Cy Young right now? And right now, of all MLB pitchers to throw 10 innings, Elder is first in a, a 31st in F4 with 1.2, but he's 16th in qualified starters of expected fit. So they're saying that he's an above average starter, and the underlying stuff doesn't not support that. It just doesn't support that he is an elite ace who deserves to be in the Cy Young conversation. Right now, the Cy Young race still looks like a race between Zach Gallon and a race between Center Strider. But if Elder can, can, you, can continue to escape this regression monster, he could garner some support from a traditionalist style of voter, someone who likes a lot of innings and a low ERA, not really looking at anything under the hood. And that brings us to another really interesting starting pitcher. Most of you are probably familiar with the name Michael Kopech. Now, Michael Kopech has high octane stuff. He was touted as this prospect who would come up and throw 102. And if you remember in 2021, he was stuck into that really good White Sox bullpen alongside Garrett Crochet, Liam Hendricks, and a couple other names who we all thought would go into 2022 and be one of the best bullpens in baseball. Obviously, that kind of fell apart. And Michael Kopech was put into the starting rotation as he was in the minor leagues as a starting pitcher. And that's what they wanted him to be ultimately. You don't send a guy to the major leagues who has starting pitching potential as a reliever. In 2022, he had a 354 ERA over 25 starts, 119 innings pitched, but it wasn't, you know, the best stuff. It was solid. It was okay. But we expected strides forward this year for Michael Kopech. And if you look at the back of the baseball card, He's got a 424 ERA and a 532 expected ERA this year. That's not good. 25.1 strikeout percentage and a 12.1 walk percentage. Michael Kopech was kind of taking, you know, strides in the wrong direction. And his season so far, 10 starts, you know, we're almost hitting that Mickey Mouse season, 60 games. It's the tale of two stories. His first eight starts and his last two. And it's early but we're going to cookie cutter. We're going to cherry pick. We're going to look at some of his stuff. So his first eight starts, Michael Kopech was just outright horrendous. He didn't really have many fantastic starts. And those that he did, he was walking high amounts of batters. He had two six inning starts of one earned run of baseball. But in those starts, he walked a combined eight hitters. And this were against the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Minnesota Twins. He had a horrible start to the season. 
In eight starts, Michael Kopech had pitched to a 574 ERA, striking out 41 batters to 28 walks. So that's what we thought of Michael Kopech. We thought that this season was just going to be a step in the wrong direction and it was going to be another issue that the Chicago White Sox had failed another starting pitcher, had failed another young talent. Michael Kopech had gotten lit up against the Giants. He had gotten lit up against the Rays, the Blue Jays, the Reds. A lot of offenses, even some that weren't supposed to, were taking advantage of Michael Kopech and his very easy-to-hit fastball and off-speed stuff. The biggest noticeable one was the curveball. His curveball is a below-league-average pitch. However, Michael Kopech normally actually does have above-league-average stuff. If we're talking in terms of stuff plus, Michael Kopech has been a very interesting pitcher throughout his career because, again, we talk about the results that he's not getting, but he has high-octane stuff just like the prospect sheet analyzed. Michael Kopech overall has 114 stuff plus. The curveball is slightly below average at 97. The changeup at 91. Fastball, the most interesting one, at 123 with a slider at 102, right? So we have above average stuff, which is a good sign. But when you throw your worst pitches more often, it normally doesn't lead to success. In the first eight starts of the season, he used this curveball 7.4% of the time. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that's that's not a lot, lot of curveballs thrown. Why are, you, why are you honing in on this curveball? Because it has been his worst pitch so far this year. And it's one of the things that you can point to and be like, oh, this is a definitive change in something that he has done this year. You also look at his release point, which is a really interesting thing, especially for starting pitchers. His first eight starts, his release point was five foot eleven, and then two starts ago, things just started to change. He goes into Kansas City. Yes, this is an easy offense to pitch to, but it wasn't the only thing that changed. It wasn't just the fact that he was playing an easy offense. He changed some stuff about himself. His relief point lowered to five foot eight. He stopped using the curveball pretty much altogether. He uses it 1.1% of the time over his past two starts, and his fastball velocity is going up. In his past two, his past three outings, his fastball started at 94.3 on May 7th, and in his last two starts, it's been at 96.6 and 96.5, and that's with a lower arm slot. The reason the lower arm slot significant is if we look at Christian Javier, that's crazy. It goes up. You know how he had that invisible fastball and so many people were really high on him to win the Cy Young Award this year? That's because he had that invisible, that fastball, that with such a high vertical approach angle, hitters couldn't see it. And Michael Kopech is capitalizing on that right now. And with this lower arm slot, the fastball has more life to it. It has more induced vertical break. It has more induced horizontal break. And now with this lower arm slot, the fastball has more life to it than it really ever has. It's got more induced vertical break and more induced horizontal break, meaning that this lower arm slot that's more deceptive, he's throwing the ball faster and it's moving more, making it just overall a much, much better pitch. When you have a low arm slot fastball, it does give the impression of an invisible, right? This is what Christian Javier capitalizes on. But 
it also allows you to miss in the zone more. The lower your arm slot, the more in the zone, more specifically the top of the zone, you're able to miss without there being possible consequences. And you'd think that this is also the only adjustment he's made, but no. Every single pitch he's had, bar the fastball, has an increase in extension, basically meaning he's releasing all of his pitches closer to home plate, which is something really interesting. On May 12th, two starts or three starts ago, his fastball was released at six foot eleven, the slider six foot eight, the curveball six foot five, and the changeup six foot ten. Yes, that's still very close to the batter that's basically being released from 53 feet. On May 24th, yesterday, his start, the fastball maintained six foot eleven, but the slider moved up two inches to six foot ten. The curveball moved up five inches to six foot ten, and the changeup moved up two inches to seven feet. So not only is he throwing harder, he's releasing the ball closer to home plate, and Stuff Plus really likes that in all honesty. Every single pitch besides the changeup has gone up in its overall stuff value. The fastball has gone up to a 124, the slider up to 115, and the curveball 137. So his worst pitch that wasn't successful has actually increased, which is a fantastic thing to think about. When you make an adjustment that's supposed to make you better, it actually makes you better. So Michael Kopech, yes, has he pitched against two teams that might not be the best in the Guardians and the Royals? Sure. But is he an interesting case study to follow over his next couple starts to see if this breakout is true? Yes, he is. And I will be watching to follow along. And I suggest you all do do too. Now, this is an issue that I'm sure a lot of people in baseball are familiar with, especially those that pay attention on social media. And that's uh, New York Yankees fans. Obviously, the Yankees are good for baseball, whether you like them or not. The New York Yankees have been a presence in baseball for really as long as it's been popular, especially in the growth in the 20s with Babe Ruth, Murderer's Bro. And yes, they do have 27 rings, although last one was 14 years ago. There's a large portion of the population who has never been alive for a Yankees World Series. However, their fans are just as rowdy as ever. They feel like their last World Series was yesterday. And on Twitter and on social media, Yankees fans are a bit outspoken, to say the least. So it's not surprising. But it always seems that the Yankee fandom always has a player of theirs that they truly hate being on their team. In 2021, it was Gary Sanchez and really catchers as a whole. They weren't getting any production from them, and they're overall disappointing. In 2022, it was Joey Gallo and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. And so far this year, it had been Aaron Hicks. Aaron Hicks got DFA'd on May 20th, 2023, and there's rumors that maybe he'll go live his lifelong dream of a PGA Tour, but I think a team might take a floater on him or something, given the fact that he is at nine years of service time, and if you are able to fix him, he's under a relatively cheap deal. He's owed $10 million over the next two seasons, uh, $10 million each year this is. And let's be completely honest, though. They, they had a reason to not be rooting for Gary Sanchez and Joey Gallo and Aaron Hicks because they weren't performing. However, instead of, you know, looking at the organization, looking at other things, and also looking at what these players have done outside of their organization, specifically Joey Gallo, they blamed the player and they booed the player, they harassed the player. And for people like Joey Gallo, it got personal, it got to their head, they dealt with mental health issues, and it's an issue to some degree, but you are allowed to be critical 
of your team. Everyone does it. I'm as guilty of it as anyone. You hear me saying that David Peralta shouldn't be in the lineup for the Dodgers every single time I record. But there's a difference between saying, oh, yeah, this player sucks or it being continuous social media harassment any single time that someone makes a mistake. It's all over the Twitter space. It's all over Instagram. It's all over YouTube. Like it's the worst thing to ever happen. When in reality, it was a small error. Aaron Hicks wasn't good this year. He had a 241 Woba and a 215 expected Woba, which is abysmal. Let's not get that wrong. But he had a negative two atom of average, which again, not great, but it's not horrible, all things considered. But whenever he made an error, it was a very noticeable eye test error. And those stack up. There's plays of him dropping fly balls. There's the play down the foul line where he just had the ball and didn't throw it in, and the runner took more bases. And he has negative 0.4 F4 this year. So obviously, he has been a below replacement level player. So putting someone in who's going to accumulate no war this year is technically better than Aaron Hicks. The thing is, with Aaron Hicks gone, Yankees fans are already looking for the next victim. Articles have been published about how it is time to designate Josh Donaldson for assignment. For those who don't know about the resume of Josh Donaldson, he's had a pretty good career, all things considered. Josh Donaldson won an MVP in 2015. Whether he should have or not, it was still a great year. He followed it up with another great year in 2016. He was good in 2013 and 2014 in Oakland. 2018, he was in Toronto. And he was injury plagued that restricted him. Same thing happened in 2018 with Cleveland. But you know what? Josh Donaldson was still a good baseball player. 2019 comes around. He's with the Braves. He puts up a 900 OPS. Twins in 2020 and 2021. He's very good. He gets dealt to the Yankees. And what is almost an infamous trade at this point, just considering all the pieces that came out of it, Gary Sanchez and Gio Rochella went to the Twins. Isaiah Conner-Falefa and Jose Trevino went to the Yankees. So you'd think this is like a great trade, but no, because Isaiah Kainafalefa has not produced value. Jose Trevino is a replacement level bat and maybe a slightly above average glove. But again, Yankees Twitter will defer with that. Urshela is an angel and Gary Sanchez is a backup catcher for the Mets now. So this is kind of where I noticed it starting to go south. Josh Donaldson had a rough year at the plate last year, posting a 682 OPS. But he still played a really good – he had a really good glove. He had six outs above average, and you have to give this guy who two years ago was really good hitter, you have to give him a, an ounce of breathing room. And I understand the pressure of playing in New York, but first of all, trading for Josh Donaldson is – a smart move for an organization considering that the guy is hit in the past, but also the fact that if you just designate him for assignment, you don't get value from that. Josh Donaldson will have value to some team. The other guy that they really point out and pick on is DJ LeMahieu, which all things considered, he hasn't lived up to the hype of his contract. I'm not going to argue that point at all, but he's got potential. He's still a very good baseball player. It's just being overshadowed by the fact that there are other people to pick on, and now Yankees fans are looking for the next guy that they need to get rid of. And I don't think they want to get rid of DJ LeMahieu. They want to stop pretending that he is some good player. The thing is, he's in the 86th percentile in average exit velocity, the 91st in hard hit rate. He just peppers the ball in the ground. In last year, 
he had nine outs above average at three positions. Positional versatility has so much value in today's day and age, given the DH takes up a spot. And obviously, that's always been a constant in the American League. But as opposed to needing three competent players to play three positions, you have one competent player to play three positions. And he has a bit exceptional. But he's going out, or the Yankees fans are just going out and hating someone who is a slightly above league average hitter right now. He's got a 102 WRC plus, but with a much higher ceiling because the old guy's gone. And what? I don't understand that logic. I think that the New York Yankees as a whole, their fan base needs to understand that it's okay to not have someone to hate on your team because going out and just hating someone just to hate someone or just because of their contract is not an acceptable thing to do. It's not good for the organization. It's not good for the player. And it makes you look ignorant as a whole. You point out that these players who have come from organiza- other organizations have struggled. you got Joey Gallo. you got DJ LeMay. You are two great examples. Isaiah Kainafalefa, if you want. Jose Trevino. At some point, it's not entirely the fault of the players. The organization isn't receiving outside talent successfully and turning them into contributing members of the organization. They do a great job with turning around relief pitchers. Giancarlo Stanton has had his, the worst years of his career in New York. Obviously, they've been injury-riddled, but it's still happening. Aaron Judge is homegrown, and it feels like that team is Aaron Judge or bust, and the fans are kind of building that perspective as well. So I think that something kind of just needs to change about how a Yankee culture is. But then again, who am I to judge an entire fan base based off of their desire to win a World Series, something that they have to do in order to consider a season successful, especially with their reputation among other baseball franchises. And the last thing I wanted to talk about today was the breakout of Zach McKinstry of the Detroit Tigers. And who is Zach McKinstry? Like, I've never heard of this guy. What is he and why do I care about him? So his background, he's a 33rd round pick by the Los Angeles Dodgers out of Central Michigan in the 1,001st overall pick in that draft. He floated around the organization for a while and got temporary playing time in 2020 to 2022. Only played in 74 games and in all honesty, he wasn't that productive. He wasn't even a he didn't he wasn't a role player on the team. He kind of just fit into the organization and just places on the roster where an injury would occur, where they just need to get a starter off their feet. It didn't feel like he was a contributing member of a World Series organization. So 2022 comes around, and at the trade deadline, the Dodgers need a couple of relief pitchers. So they send Zach McKinstry to the Chicago Cubs for Chris Martin at the deadline, and he doesn't really do much in Chicago. This offseason, after being with the Cubs, he is traded to the Detroit Tigers in exchange for Carlos Guzman in a super unnoticed trade. When I saw Zach McKinstry on opening day as a member of the Tigers, I was surprised because I had thought he was with the Cubs. Right now, Carlos Guzman, the guy he was traded for, is in double-A for the Cubs. He was a 2.25 ERA over 16 innings pitched, 15 strikeouts, and 8 walks. So we are wishing him the best, and maybe it'll be a good two-sided trade. Because right now, it really looks like a good trade for the Tigers. But at first, you're thinking, wow, this is a horrible trade, because he went 3-for-38 in spring training. And the thought around him was that he would just be a roster piece for a little, and then when someone above replacement level came in, he'd be DFA'd. He was just 
a player on a rebuilding team. Through April 15th, Zach McKinstry supported this narrative. He had a slash run of 185, 241, 259 for a 500 OPS. That's not very good. He was really close to being designated for assignment and making that a reality. But he decided, no, this isn't going to happen. This isn't my path. I want to be a part of the contributing Major League franchise. And if you do that, you have the reps possible, especially with the Detroit Tigers especially with a team whose biggest weakness is their offense. The Detroit Tigers have given him the opportunity to play every day, and since April 15th, he's been able to get up his average stat line on the year to a 273 batting average, 372 on base percentage, and a 400 slugging percentage good for a 772 OPS. And trying to understand about, well, why is he succeeding all of a sudden, Zach McIntyre said this, the front shoulders are on the plane with the ball, and he's talking about Rafael Devers and Jose Ramirez. He's a left-handed hitter, so he modeled himself after two extraordinary American League left-handed hitters. He says, quote, that's my thought process. Maybe if I get my hands above the ball, my shoulders will stay more level. They kind of crush baseballs, so why can't I? I'm trying to get my hands above the ball, McKinstry said. I feel like I feel like I was missing late and underneath the ball a lot. So now I'm looking at the top of the ball when it's coming in and trying to hit the top of the ball. It's kind of clicking. So basically what he's doing is as opposed to thinking about launching the ball. And when he was doing that, he was popping it up, right? So you can almost assume you can derive that he was hitting too far down the ball. So if he's thinking hit the top of the ball, He's going to meet in the middle of those two locations and probably find a really optimal line drive launch angle, or maybe even that launch angle he was trying to achieve when he was under the ball, but it ended up being a pop-up. Now, thinking that he's going to hit the top of the ball, he's more on plane with the ball and able to launch it more successfully. Well, what other adjustments can we see coming with him? He's got 41% four-seam fastballs thrown against him. That's a high number. And he's got a 317 Woba, which overall isn't bad, but for fastballs, that's not great. But it's got a 434 expected Woba, suggesting he's due for a lot of positive regression. And you would think that, well, it's just one pitch. This might not be the only thing for him. It matches up with his overall expected Woba, which is in the 89th percentile. This guy who was on the verge of being DFA just over a month ago is in the 89th percentile with a 380 expected Woba compared to his 345. The 345 Woba is still well above average, but given these adjustments and given the fact he's playing above average defense, it looks like he's going to be a mainstay for the Detroit Tigers for at least the rest of the season. This will be another guy just like Michael Kopech who was super interesting to follow throughout the rest of the season given the fact that he kind of has a new swing, a new approach at the plate, and it's succeeding for an organization who really needs offensive support. So can he help the Detroit Tigers win the division? No, because the Tigers aren't going to win the division. But is Zach McKinstry a player who might be a part of the next good Tigers team? Yes. Thank you all for listening to the 4A Baseball Podcast. If you did enjoy, please consider leaving a rating, a review, or sharing with a friend. Remember, these are going to be in smaller, condensed version with some video that will be on YouTube if you do want to go check those out. Also, some media links will be in the description below. YouTube will be there as well. So we do appreciate any support you have. Thank you all for listening to the 4A Baseball Podcast. We will see you all next time. Peace. Yeah.